Shades Midweek, where we have conversations about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I'm Brad Brown in the studio with John Mark DeRoe and Jonathan Hafes. We are fresh off Thanksgiving 2020. How are y'all doing? How was Thanksgiving? I'm still full from Thanksgiving. Mm. I ate so much food. What's your What's your favorite favorite part of Thanksgiving? Lunch or dinner? Yeah, I mean, all of it is great. I, mm. I like pumpkin pie a lot. I was about to say, I thought he was asking for like your favorite thing that you eat. I do yeah, that's what I was asking. Dressing. Dressing. Yeah, yeah, dr- yeah. The dressing Dressing's, does it for me. Yeah. And I don't know why we only cook this at like Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas. I know. I it should be an everyday kind of situation. Uh, uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, would, I would die very quickly. Um <laughs> All the gravy-covered dressing. It is amazing after you eat the Thanksgiving meal, like what you feel immediately afterwards. What do you What do you feel? <laughs> uh, elation and joy, but then also just followed by exhaustion, self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do Do you guys? Is there anything unique or strange that? Uh, was a part of the Thanksgiving meal, like either now for you or, or growing up? Was there any unique dish? Like my mm. mom always made, and I, I never ate it, sorry, mom, Um, but she made this frozen cranberry thing. I don't know. It basically looked like pink brownies, but it was cold. It was like cranberry. It was almost like ice cream consistency or something like that, but I, I, never, uh, I never dug it. I've never yikes. seen it anywhere else. It, we had it every Thanksgiving. Maybe we're the only weird ones. Well, I, I was trying to think. I can't really think of anything. I mean, it was pretty standard. I will say that my family always did the cranberry sauce out of the can. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. No, that's what my mom does. No stems or anything. Yeah. And so to this day, I can't do the fancy cranberry sauce. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, actual cranberries. <laughs> I'm like, give it to I'm me. I'm sure they make an organic version of the can now. I'm, I'm sure they do. Yeah. I'm sure they do. But I'm just like, yeah, give it to me out of the yes. can with all the chemicals. Right. Let's bring it on. I don't think anybody eats cranberries outside of Thanksgiving because for the rest of the year, it's like, what are we going to do with all these cranberries? Let's stick it in every other juice known to man. Yeah, they put Let's it. Just combine cran, it with cran all. apple, cran raspberry. And people yep. are still buying all these other juices, but they're not buying cranberries. It's not Thanksgiving. Well, we're going to start a food podcast (laughs) now. We have a lot of insight, a lot of good things to say, clearly. Well, JM, why don't you uh, give us uh, some announcements? Yeah, really. Tell us what's going on. Really quickly, we have a few things happening. Uh, There's an event on December 11th. It is the Christmas Spectacular. Spectacular. We are bringing that back. It will be in the SVCC parking lot, weather permitting, it has been freezing this week, so <laughs> no. I don't know. Well, maybe maybe uh, the weather you know here in Alabama is just getting all the cold out of its system early. That's right. So that next week it'll be kind of nice and balmy and warm if for ha- when we do this outdoor event. If you have one of those big outdoor heaters and would love to loan that to us, we would take it. Yeah, we'll yes. we'll take all of those. So that will be from six eight p.m. on December eleventh. I think there's going to be. Some vendors set up outside uh, yes. selling stuff. Yeah, and so you can buy like little stocking stuffers, Christmas gifts. We're going to have music. I think we're still doing the tacky sweater contest. Is that, that right? That is happening. That is happening. So we, yeah. we did that last staple. year and I think the year before. Is it's this a, the third year we've done it's it It's a now? crowd favorite. Yeah. It's a crowd favorite. I think there's also going to be food in some form. 
That's the plan. I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna serve it out of crockpots like we normally do. That's not right. COVID friendly. A lot of things are gonna change this year, <laughs> yes. but we're doing the best that we can to make everything fun and safe for everyone. And it's also free this year. That's Absolutely right. Absolutely yep. free. In yes. past years, you had to pay. There, there will be a raffle. So if you would like to buy raffle tickets, there will be right. a raffle. Yeah, we'll as be giving away something special. Yes. Yeah. Should Apple, I say what it is right I, now? I was just going to say it's an Apple product. Are we about to I was release say it's it right an now? Apple Dropping product. Right like, here. It's an Apple right product. <laughs> on the podcast. Here and we go. What's it called? <laughs> is it HomePod? Yeah, isn't it the HomePod Apple Mini? Apple HomePod Mini. <laughs> White. And it's going to be great. Yeah. Really you can buy as many raffle tickets as you want. <laughs> if you bought a hundred something, you you'd probably you probably got a pretty good chance of winning. There you go. Getting at a reduced rate. Yeah, so that's gonna be great. And then we also have a virtual angel tree that we're doing this year. Michelle Blackwood has put all that together for us. Currently, as we're recording this podcast, our website is actually down. And so all the information is on the website. Now you can visit uh, our Instagram page. And if you go to the bio of our Instagram, I have put the link to sign up for the angel trees. So it's a sign up genius link. If you click on that, you can see the list of kids that need presents this year. And there will be information that you can find there. Hopefully we'll get the website back up soon so that you can find all that there. But that is the angel tree. So definitely, um, you know, take some time and, and go sign up and provide a present for a child in need this season. So, yes. Awesome. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. We have Advent devotionals available. Oh, yeah. Once again, yeah. those were available on the website. Which yeah. is currently down, but they can really see it limits. in the, they can see it in the Instagram stories right you now. You can see it in the Instagram stories. I posted it um, yesterday. I posted it to our Instagram story. Those go away after 24 hours, but I highlighted them. So if you go to the highlights in our Instagram profile, if you don't have the devotional, you can read it there for yeah. this week's devotional. And if you're not getting our emails, what's wrong with you? Is my first question. <laughs> and what are you doing with your life? Secondly, an exhortation. Uh, shoot us. <laughs> An email, office at Shades Valley, Brad at Shades Valley, John Mark at Shades Valley, really anybody at Shades Valley. Midweek at Shades Valley. (laughs) Midweek at Shades Valley and say, hey, I repent and I would like to get the weekly email. If you're not getting the weekly emails, you are missing out on so much that God has for you. Wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't that be one way of saying it? It's maybe overstating it slightly. (laughs) A little dramatic, but you know, I'm a preacher. Well, there's one more thing that I really want to hear JM announce. Mm. Ooh, you know what it is, guys. I wrote a jingle for JM's album of the week. <sighs> I wrote a jingle, and this is the the premiere. The All world right. here pre- it is. The world premiere. I need to hear it <laughs> now. Before I play this, <laughs> <laughs> building up let disclaimers. Me, let me just preface that this is the long extended version of the song. Okay. Okay. When we from so this episode only, you're gonna hear. Only the extended full version. From all the episodes here on out, it will be a short five-second jingle. Can okay. can we buy it on Apple Music? Not or? yet. Okay. It's not available yet, but coming soon. Good, good, good. To a Best Buy near you. Okay. Uh, so here is uh, the world premiere. Here it is. <laughs> of the JM's album of the week. Single. JM's album of the J.M.'s Album of the Week, J.M.'s Album, it's an album. 
right. Incredible. Right. Incredible. <laughs> the world premiere. John I, Mark, <laughs> I've been studying upstairs all, all morning the, the about the new heavens and the new earth, and I feel like I needed that, that as the, the ambiance. How did you get Taylor Swift to perform <laughs> on that song? That's what I want to know. I know. I got Taylor Swift and Justin Vernon, also known as Bonnie Vare, were good friends. Unbelievable. Oh. And, so and Imogen Heap came in. She produced it. it so So many connections. I'm telling you, yeah, I played Ashley that, and she was like, don't you think that's a little long? <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, why we'll only play the five-second version from here on out. So, James' album of the week this week is, uh, I'm going to keep it Advent-themed since we're in the mm, season of Advent. Good decision, good I decision. Like um, so, if you haven't yet listened to Young Ocean's Advent record, it's mm. amazing. I'm a huge fan of Young Ocean's. He's a Christian um, artist out of New York, and he puts out a lot of great music. Um, it's not CCM. It really doesn't fit into a typical worship category. It's it's almost like he's self-described it as prayer music. And this is an album that he put out back in 2013 that's just called Advent. There are several original songs on there. There's also some instrumental versions of some songs in there. We, we do a couple of these at Shades. And some of these are actually on the SVCC Advent Hymnal. And um, I love it. It's a really thought-provoking album, really uh, contemplative, and it's it's great. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Emotions. Great wreck. Yeah. Are we going to play the song again for the outro? <laughs> <laughs> Not the whole thing. Okay. Well, maybe we'll play it at the end of the episode for those who want to hear it again. Oh, man. <laughs> well, boys. We are into Advent, and on Sunday we started our Advent series, which is actually just the end of our Revelation series. Yep. We hey, we changed the name. Uh, the title of the Revelation series was The Revelation, and yeah. we changed this one to... Who says you have to change the book you're doing? Yeah, yeah, we changed Who the, makes those rules? We changed the title to The, the Advent. The Pope? I don't think so. <laughs> we don't have one of those. We don't have one of those. We do whatever we want. Right. Whenever we finish uh, Revelation, I'm not going to know how to title anything anymore, because right. every, everything's just titled The Something. That's right. That's oh. right. But so so the Advent, uh, which led us uh, to our first sermon uh, of that series this Sunday, entitled "The Victory," and we tackled the behemoth that is Revelation twenty. Finally, the <laughs> one we've all been waiting for. I don't know why. Oh man! But yes, we we did it. And for those of you that don't know, Revelation twenty is just a slightly debated passage. It's actually the most debated passage in the entire book of Revelation. Yeah. Why is that? It's because it mentions this little thousand-year period, so the millennium, mm. um, and the in the year two thousand, <laughs> in the year two thousand. <laughs> What's funny is from the beginning of this this series, people have been asking about the millennium, right? I mean, we've been getting questions. I mean, thousands of people have just, been asking, just overwhelmed. When, when is when are we going to do the episode on the millennium? The yeah. day has arrived. Christmas is coming early. Yeah. Don't want to don't want to so you know glad, miss out on Advent. I'm so but glad I can stop answering all those emails. There's been so many of them in a day. That's right. Inundated. I'm, I'm excited. I don't know if you can tell. Well, as sarcastic as we are being, um, the uh, it is the most debated passage in Revelation. I mean, yeah. uh, the people's interpretation of the millennium divides churches. It divides denominations. And and honestly, for a lot of people that I do talk to about the debate surrounding the millennium, like you kind of get people in in one of two categories when you talk about the millennium you get people that love debating it and mm -hmm. just want to go like 
just hard into the weeds and, and they get all really, the deep cuts. Yeah, and they get really riled up about their position and all that. And then you got the other half uh, that, re- or probably actually more than half, um, that the whole conversation discourages them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the primary reason, and it's not just debates like about the millennium, it's anytime you get into really deep theological debates, for a lot of people, those kinds of conversations can discourage them because I think for them, it feels like that conversation turns the church inward. Mm. It, it turns us in on ourselves where we're just kind of splitting theological hairs sometimes. Not that they're unimportant. <laughs> these right. are these are really important issues and things like that. But I think the way that we go about handling their importance can discourage people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the fact that this divides churches and discourages people, um, it really shouldn't be that way. Uh, Revelation 20 the millennium, it should actually unite us. It should unite us, not not necessarily that we're all going to have the same view, obviously, but it should unite us in encouragement. This is an encouraging word. Like, no mm-hmm. matter which way you come at it, mm-hmm. it's an encouraging word. It's good news. Yes, and it's meant to empower us for our mission. Again, no matter which way you come at it, mm-hmm. this is meant to empower us for our mission. In other words, it should actually turn us outward should encourage us, unite us in encouragement, and then turn us outward on on mission. So so just to get us started, I want to say like no matter what you end up, each person ends up thinking about the millennium, no matter what position you take, remember this, that it should unite us in encouragement and empower us for mission. Pursue that. There, I mean, just personally, I want to say like right here at the beginning, there are so many people that I know, love, and respect who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. We come down in different places. There are scholars that are that I disagree with and who disagree with me that I love and respect and just think the world of. And so I really want to encourage us uh, to pursue unity in the things we can be unified around and for that to encourage us and for that to unite us in our, our mission. Yeah. So this is even something that people at Shades Valley can disagree on and be full-fledged members. Yeah, absolutely. So an interesting thing about the denomination we're a part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is uh, a part of our statement of faith for since the inception of the EFCA uh, actually included an explicit millennial position. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was explicitly premillennial. We'll talk about what that means in a, in a little while. Mm-hmm. But So for a very long time, to be a part of the EFCA, you were supposed to hold to a premillennial position. That actually changed. Uh, not too long ago, they officially, uh, our denomination voted to change the doctrinal statement. So now you can hold any millennial position, yeah. um, which is, is actually a little bit more, not a little bit more, a lot more uh, keeping in step with the overarching ethos of the Evangelical Free Church. Yeah, of kind of what already existed within the denomination with different perspectives. Right, right. And uh, if you want me to explain a little bit later on, maybe if we have time, why the EFCA used to be. Uh, had that explicit premillennial conviction as a part of its statement of faith. I'm I'm happy to to do that. But mm-hmm. let's just get started with the big picture stuff. Yeah. So basically, and I'm going to have to. I know this this is uh, on Sunday. I promised everybody this podcast was coming. It was going to be the deep dive into the millennium stuff. Yes. Deep dive's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, you could do uh, an entire episode on each of the different millennial interpretations. You could do multiple episodes. So we are just still kind of skimming the, the, the surface here. And so one of the ways, unfortunately, that I've got to skim the surface is only going to talk about three main interpretive approaches to the millennium. But these are the big ones. 
These are the big this ones. The ones you hear about. Yes, and they are premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. The word millennial right there obviously is reference to the 1,000-year period that Revelation 20 talks about. It's a period in which it says Satan is bound for a 1,000 years. The saints are ruling and reigning with Christ for a 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is unbound and released, and the Christ defeats evil at that time, and uh, the new heavens and the new earth are, are brought about. So, so this is the 1,000 years we're talking about. Now, is that the only place in Revelation that the 1,000 years is talked about? It's the only place in the Bible. The only place in the Bible. Yeah, at least that it's talked about in this way. Now, different people will want to make arguments that some other passages are referring to this idea, mm. but nothing ever explicitly um, talks about the millennium other than Revelation chapter 20. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's... I was going to say, I'm, Go glad, I'm glad we're discussing this because I thought that millennial, we were talking about people that were born. Millennials. <laughs> 19, what is it, 1982 to yes. 19, there's there's a period there. Has anyone ever I heard? I thought we were just talking about people born after the millennials <laughs> and before and, you know, that that kind of thing. And so I'm glad that we cleared all this <laughs> up. Yeah. Now. You were very confused on Sunday. Super oh. confused. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, so we don't mean that by millennial. <laughs> Yes, it's referring to uh, thousands just, of years. Revelation twenty to be stupid. millennial. Uh, no, that was good. No, it's fantastic. Was good. Well, I like Jonathan's joke on Sunday about uh, pan millennial. That's great. It's not going right. to pan out oh. in the end. That's like a classic, just right down Main Street pastor joke. It, I love it. It is. It, it makes is. me feel good. It's not my joke. It's one that just gets repeated all the time. Yeah, but you it's had great. to use it. Yeah. You couldn't not you use it. Couldn't not say it. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't here on Sunday, basically when people talk about pre-post and ah mill positions some people will say well i'm a pan millennialist because it's all gonna pan out in the end <laughs> uh, oh we got jokes those are, those yeah. are the christians same, got jokes those are the same people that at dinner the waiter comes up and they ask them something like how was dinner and, and they're like oh it was terrible <laughs> as you can see we hate as it. you can see i hated it <laughs> And their plate's empty, and they kind of look at the wait- waitress like, man, aren't I, I hilarious? I've, it's those same people. I've totally, I've, I've totally done that before. I've never made that joke, ever. <laughs> oh, man. Somebody somebody out there is listening right now going, I thought this was an episode about the millennium. Oh, what it is, is going on? <laughs> it is. Okay. So, millennial obviously refers to the thousand years. Uh, it's the, the prefixes that distinguish the, the positions. Um, the, the prefixes have to do with how one sees the millennium in relation to the return of Christ. So pre, uh, Christ returns pre-millennium. He comes back before the millennium. Uh, post, Christ returns post-millennium. He comes back after the millennium. And then ah, millennial makes it sound like, you know, you don't believe there's a millennium at all, which is actually kind of a misnomer. Like, like that's not what that position right. believes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to the specifics of it in just a second. But let's just take those three big interpretive approaches one at a time. And so that leads us to start with uh, pre-millennialism. And let's, let's just kind of talk about its highlights, strengths, weaknesses, stuff like that. Yes. So first, pre-millennialism, uh, well, all of these terms, they, they get talked about in a couple of different ways. So you, you'll hear pre-millennial or pre-mill or someone will call themselves a pre-millennialist. Like all of those mean the exact same thing. So pre-millennialism 
And one more caveat. <laughs> these these interpretive approaches, they subdivide into yes. all sorts of uh, different nuances and, and more all, than and, you could ever want. Right. And and, and and we don't have the time to, to cover all of that. So I'm, I'm just kind of scratching the surface, giving a big overarching view. So when we're talking about premillennial, what we mean is that Christ returns pre before the millennium. Mm-hmm. So so why do people think this? Well, yeah. Basically, they believe that chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation are chronological. And what do we see at the end of chapter 19? Well, we see the return of Christ. And that's before chapter 20, the millennium. So clearly, Christ's return is pre-millennial. At the end of chapter 19, Christ returns, beast and the false prophet are defeated and thrown into the lake of fire, and then we get chapter 20. And what happens? Satan is bound. This is clearly after the coming of Christ. Satan is bound. The saints are raised uh, and rule with Christ. Clearly, Christ has returned, so that's on the earth. That's on the earth that saints are are raised. This is called the first resurrection. So saints are raised on the earth to rule with Christ here on the earth for a thousand years. Um, And then after that, Satan is released. He deceives the nations. We get another war, another battle, and this is the final big defeat where Satan himself, the dragon, is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are. There's definitely a way of reading Revelation 20 that makes it sound like the beast and the false prophet have been hanging out in the lake of fire for a thousand years Mm -hmm. because Christ took care of them at the end of 19. So now Satan's thrown in with them where they've been waiting on him. Uh, And then we get the second resurrection. Uh, which is for the great white throne judgment. So final judgment, new heavens, and then, and then the new heavens and new earth are ushered in. So premillennialism basically believes that uh, Christ is going to return and there will be a literal 1,000 years. Some, some of them don't take that 1,000 years literally as in 365, 1,000, you know, it's 365 days, 1,000 times. What, what, 365,000 days. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's what I was trying to say. Too much um, math. You lost me. Yeah, so, so some take that very literally like that. Some think the number is symbolic and just means big or whatever. But they believe Christ returns, sets up this 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. This is not the new heavens and new earth. This is the earth as it is now. Um, but you do have resurrected saints ruling and reigning with him here on the earth and, and it's only after all of that that you get kind of the final end of evil and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. So, so if you grew up uh, watching the Left Behind series, this would be a fiction, kind of imaginative depiction of what this pre-millennial or a version of this pre-millennial view could look like. Yes, a, a version of it because it gets even more specific. Yeah. Um, and that's that's actually what we were going to get into right here. Um so having seen the overarching kind of idea of how premillennialism interprets Revelation 20, the question that really you've got to ask yourself about all of these positions is what does that position see is the purpose of the millennium? Okay. The thousand years, Satan being bound, saints ruling with Christ on the earth. What, what's the point? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's being accomplished there? And this is the point at which premillennialism divides into two main camps. So I told you it subdivides infinitely. We've got to at least subdivide it once. Yep. Okay. 
And so because there there are two main camps that see the purpose of an earthly 1,000-year millennium before the new heavens and new earth, they, they see the purpose of it very differently. Okay, what are those two camps? Those two camps are dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. So let's start with dispensational premillennialism. Now, dispensationalism, everybody's loving all these terms <laughs> getting thrown around. Yeah. Dispensationalism is actually much bigger than just what somebody thinks about the millennium, what they think about Revelation. It It is an entire interpretive framework for how to read the Bible. And we obviously do not have time to unpack that mm-hmm. right now. But here's what, what, what I'm about to describe with dispensational premillennialism. That's what a lot of people are going to be familiar with. It's what all of us grew up with. We all grew up with seeing, at least seeing Revelation through the lens of dispensational premillennialism. And the reason for all of that is dispensationalism really finds its roots in a man by the name of John Darby, who lived in the late 1800s. John Darby heavily influenced uh, not just certain pockets of Christianity, but he heavily influenced uh, Schofield who wrote the Schofield Bible, which was really yeah. kind of like the first study Bible. We had one of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We definitely had a Schofield reference Bible. Uh, I bet a lot of people still have one in mm-hmm. their house somewhere. Yeah. And so Burn this, it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't burn it. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Remember that whole section where we talked about love and joke. respect? and That was, that was totally a joke. Do uh, not do that. Anyway, <laughs> it was kind of one of the first Bibles that had study notes at the bottom of it. And if you read what it has to say about Revelation, it comes from a dispensational perspective. Mm-hmm. And so that that uh, spread, uh, the dispensational premillennial uh, thought, far and wide, really affected a lot of uh, conservative uh, evangelical believers. Mm-hmm. Well, then you also had a man by the name of Hal Lindsey publish a massively popular work, uh, I believe in the 60s or 70s. I can't remember when it was published, uh, but it's called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that influenced a lot of people to see things through this perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, then along came the, uh, uh, the, the, the movies in the 70s. Thief of the Night, the Thief of the Night movies, and then along came the Left Behind series in the 90s, and then the Left Behind movies. Mm. All of these things are coming from that same perspective, and so at just kind of the popular level, uh, this is what most people are familiar with. Even people outside the church, outside of Christianity looking in, like this is what they usually think when they think about Revelation or any of those kinds of things. Man, it's interesting just to think about the shaping impact that that had on the church. Yeah. And its influence. I mean, that's a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. Fiction and movies and how it shapes our imaginations and For all sure. of that. For sure. So to, to give a very brief um, summary here of yeah. dispensational premillennialism, uh, dispensationalism as an interpretive framework, I'm really oversimplifying, but that's as okay. an interpretive framework, it believes that there are virtually two peoples of God. So you have Israel and God's dealings with Israel, and then you have the church and God's dealings with the church. And these are two very distinct peoples of God. Mm -hmm. And this ends up really affecting the way that dispensationalists uh, interpret Revelation. 
And what they end up seeing is what, what most people are familiar with. They end up seeing uh, Revelation is talking about a rapture of the church at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a Antichrist who forms a peace treaty with Israel for three and a half years, and then it all falls apart and, and goes crazy. And at the end of this seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns, defeats the Antichrist and sets up a 1000 year kingdom and um, yeah. And everything that I went on to describe after that, the reason for that entire framework is because dispensationalists see these two distinct peoples of God and God's dealings with these two distinct people. So all of the old Testament promises that God made to Israel promises about the land that he would give them forever promises about uh, the kingdom promises about uh, all of that, all of that has to be kept to ethnic Israel in a very literal fashion. Like they don't see those promises as being picked up in any spiritual sense uh, with the church and being kept through the church. Mm. So what they need to happen is they need this rapture that gets the church, the Gentile church, off the scene. And so basically Revelation is kind of God returning to his program with Israel and finishing that. It's mm. God going back. I get I get the Gentile church off the scene. That's kind of been a parenthesis in my dealing with Israel. And now I'm going to deal with Israel. And after the seven-year tribulation, all of that, Jesus returns. He sets up this 1,000-year kingdom specifically so that he can keep all of his promises to Israel. Mm. So this is when Israel gets the land. The kingdom comes in full for them. Um, they actually believe there will be a rebuilt temple at this time, complete with sacrifices, animal sacrifices happening again. They say that they'll happen as a memorial sacrifice that remembers and looks back on the sacrifice of Jesus, but complete with animal sacrifices happening mm. again. So all of that happens. And then at the conclusion of that, now that God has kept all of those promises to Israel like he said he would, now he ushers in new heavens and new earth uh, that incorporate all of God's people, Israel and the church. Yeah. Yada, yada. So that holds a pretty significant place in someone's theology. You oh. see how this wouldn't just be, hey, it's all going to pan out in the end. Right. Rather, it's, yeah, how are all of these promises fulfilled and how does God uh, handle these two groups of people yes. making them one? But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it influences how you interpret the Old Testament and the promises that are made to Israel. Mm-hmm. It influences how you interpret what God is doing with the church, what the church's mission is. It affects how you view on-the-ground political issues right now. Yeah. So, for instance, you'll find a lot of people who won't even know the words dispensationalism, but they grew up in conservative Christian circles, and they have a very uh, they they have a, a preference towards the state of Israel, mm-hmm. like this i the, the state of Israel that exists right now, like this idea we politically always need to be on Israel's side. No matter what Israel does, we don't oppose Israel because those are God's... That comes out of this theological framework mm. and this theological system. There are theological reasons for yes. that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it, it affects all of those those different things. Yeah. Um, so you talked about two positions. Yes. The dispensational... So, so to sum up, the, the dispensational premillennialism, they see the purpose of the thousand-year period as God fulfilling his promises to ethnic Israel. That's why it needs to happen gotcha. on the earth. Mm-hmm. So now there is a different version of premillennialism, 
called historic premillennialism. I'm going to stumble over the word millennialism so many times. Say it five times fast. Uh, so if, um, if you've been going along, uh, following along with our Revelation series, um, we obviously have taken, I obviously have taken a very different approach from uh, dispensationalism. Um, mm-hmm. And historic premillennialism actually follows along pretty closely with the way we have interpreted Revelation. So we have interpreted Revelation as uh, not being primarily about some future tribulation period, but actually about the entirety of the church age, past, present, uh, and future. And that Revelation has been showing us what the church will face throughout the church age, that these uh, most of the symbols... Uh, have multiple historical reference. So like the beast has multiple incarnations throughout history. It's any nation or power that, that opposes God and his people. Uh, it was Rome in the first century. It's been a million and one other things all throughout the centuries, and mm. it will continue until Christ returns. So, so we've interpreted Revelation through that lens and that ultimately Christ will return uh, and put an end to evil, make all things new. So historic premillennialism follows along with that pretty closely most of the way uh, until really you get to the millennium and what they believe is that there will be a literal millennium, that Christ will return and uh, vanquish the final iteration of the beast and the false prophet uh, and set up a literal 1,000-year kingdom here on the earth. And Mm. their basic reason for coming to that conclusion has to do with seeing Revelation 19 and 20 chronologically. Um, so, But they're going to have a different a understanding than the dispensation. Yes, because they don't see two distinct peoples of God. They don't, uh, they, they don't think that the reason for this earthly millennium is so that God can keep these promises to Israel. None of that. The, the historic premillennialists, like if you ask them, so what's the point mm-hmm. of like this earthly 1000 year kingdom and, and a lot of a lot of the historic premillennialists i know one of the big sticking points for them in why they interpret uh the the revelation 20 this way has to do with the first resurrection so the part mm-hmm. that talks about saints being resurrected and ruling and reigning with christ uh, a lot of them don't see a way around that being physical resurrection i see um, they're like, that's got to be physical resurrection. And one of the reasons they'll say that is because it's called the first resurrection and the rest of the dead, the unsaved, they're going to be resurrected at the end uh, of the millennium. Well, that's clearly a physical resurrection for the rest of the dead. So mm. why wouldn't this also be a physical resurrection? Sure, sure, surely they're the same thing. Do you get what I'm saying? Yep. Mm-hmm. So that it can't a, be like a spiritual resurrection and then a physical resurrection. Right, 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 right. So saints are resurrected spiritually but at the end of the thousand years, we're going to say that everybody's resurrected physically. Like, like, why wouldn't it be using the word the same way? Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's one of the big kind of sticking points um, for historic premillennialists. But they will say that um, the, the purpose of this is, one, to prove, uh, overwhelmingly prove, kind of put the final nail in the coffin on the depravity of man and the depravity of Satan. So in other words, even though you have Christ literally ruling on the earth, you still get this rebellion in the end. So it just proves that God is completely just uh, in, 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 in his judgment of fallen mankind. Mm. Um, and you get kind of the final nail in the coffin on God's proof of his power um, 
over evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all that's going to stem from their interpretation of the text. This is where I feel like the text is leading me. Yes. And so therefore I'm going to come up with these kind of reasons when you say. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, just to mention a few strengths of premillennialism. Uh, one, uh, it's a very straightforward reading of the text. I mean, you read straight from chapter 19, straight into chapter 20. It feels pretty natural to be like, well, Jesus returns, and then we get the binding of Satan in a millennium. So really straightforward reading the text. Second strength, premillennialists have a massive concern for taking the text very seriously. Mm-hmm. They do not want to play fast and loose with the Bible. And that's one of the problems they'll have with other positions. They feel like they're playing a little fast and loose with the Bible, and they're like, no, we need to take this at face value as much as we possibly can. i got massive respect um, for that. Um and then third, uh, a strength I would say is historic premillennialism does have some early church advocates, some some early church figures who clearly took that position. I'm not talking you will not find dispensational premillennialism in the mm. early church. That that doesn't show up until John Darby, late 1800s, about 200 years ago. Ah. But historic premillennialism, you will find some early church fathers uh, who clearly read the text that way. This has got to be some kind of earthly kingdom uh, after Christ's return. Yeah. So those are some strengths for premillennialism. Mm-hmm. Now, weaknesses, um, because I, I do think, I mean, obviously I, I don't hold this position. I didn't teach it on Sunday. Um, and I, I think there are many weaknesses. I'll just highlight some of those. Uh, one, I think there's a failure here to take revelation on its own literary terms. In other words, it it doesn't see how revelation is constantly um, showing us parallels. There are places where I just think it's really clear that revelation is showing us parallels of the same event or a fancy word for it. It's recapitulating uh, the same event. Mm. Um, So like a Christopher Nolan film. (laughs) (laughs) So, so like Revelation nineteen and twenty. I mean, I think I, I think it's really, really there in the text that Jesus's return and the war that's pictured at the end of Revelation nineteen is the same event that's later pictured on at the conclusion of Revelation or near the conclusion of Revelation twenty. Mm. So, so I I think it's I I think it's if you take Revelation on its own terms, these two chapters do not move in a straight chronology one from the other. I think 19 is ending with the return of Christ. 20 backs up to mm. tell the story uh, over again. So whether you see 19 and 20 being sequential or whether you see recapitulation happening in 19 and 20 is going to have a massive shaping effect on how you interpret the millennium. Absolutely. Right? And, and just to point out one, e- even if you're not you know, looking at it with the parallels and the recapitulation, there are a lot of like really just practical problems with seeing uh, them sequentially. So, mm-hmm. for instance, at the end of the war, at the end of, of chapter 19, it is very clear there is a total and utter defeat of the enemies uh, of God. It, it, it's, it's done. This war is over. The birds are feasting upon the flesh. Well, the very next thing that happens right at the beginning of 20 is Satan is bound so that he may not deceive the nations. What nations? Right. Like, who's he going to deceive? Yeah, war's over, right? Yeah, they were all just defeated. Nobody left to deceive. Now, premillennialists will come up with answers to that. I just just don't find any of them, one, in the text, or Mm -hmm. or two, convincing at all. Mm -hmm. So 
So that's, I think, uh, a weakness. Another thing that I think is a weakness is is the demand that the saints that are being raised to rule with Christ, that that's got to be a physical resurrection on the earth. And, and my questions are, why? There's nothing in the text that demands that. Um, there's nothing that demands this be on earth. As a matter of fact, the parallel passages again in Revelation would seem to indicate throne language throughout Revelation is talking about in glory. Uh, Revelation 6 and verse 9 that talks about the martyrs uh, in heaven, in glory, that language is mirrored perfectly here when we're talking about the saints raised to rule with Christ. Um, the, as far as the, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the protest that, uh, well, this passage talks about a first resurrection and it implies a second resurrection. Second resurrection is clearly physical. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, this has got to is why both these resurrections have got to be physical. Yeah. As far as that is concerned, I would say that there are actually multiple places throughout the New Testament that talk about resurrection in both a spiritual and physical sense in the same place. Probably one of the easiest places to point people to is John chapter 5, which is great because we're even dealing with the same author here, right? So John chapter 5, you get Jesus talking about spiritual resurrection, about his voice going out calling people to life and he's clearly talking about regeneration and and, and them coming spiritually alive and then within a, a moment he immediately talks about at the end of the age there his voice will go out and he will call forth all the dead uh and and they will come out of their tombs and and resurrection is talked about in a very physical way mm. so the new testament uses the word itself uh in other places in a multitude of ways. Uh, on Sunday, I talked more about how I think that that becomes explicitly clear with the qualifier. This is called the first resurrection. Mm-hmm. I won't go into the same arguments that I made on Sunday. People can go listen to that podcast. But something I didn't get to say on Sunday is right here. John talks about a first resurrection, and there's a second resurrection that's implied, obviously. He also talks about a second death. Well, that implies a first death. Mm. If we tease that out... It looks to me like these things are mirror images. They are inverse of one another. So here's what I mean by that. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. So that's coming to faith, conversion. Uh, or well, well, it depends on what position you're talking from. Um, yeah. The, so yeah, so like the, not from my position. That's not coming to faith okay. and conversion, but, but we'll get there. We'll get there. But just spiritual, just stick with me, no matter which way you see it. Mm-hmm. Spiritual resurrection. And the second resurrection at the end of the age is a physical resurrection. Well, that mirrors what we know about death. The first death is clearly physical death. The second death that's talked about in Revelation is clearly spiritual death. So you see how these are mirror opposites of one another. Mm -hmm. First resurrection, spiritual. Second resurrection, physical. First death, physical. Second death, spiritual. They, they match. So if you actually try to make the argument that both resurrections are physical and you, and you gotta, you gotta be consistent with the wording there, then you kind of have to make the same argument with the deaths. First death, second death have to be consistently the same thing and Mm. it doesn't work. It falls apart. Hmm. So I know we're getting into the weeds. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to speed up a little bit here. This is the weeds podcast. It is the weeds podcast. We warn people. Oh. So uh, I, I, another issue just with that whole idea of resurrected bodies um, here on the earth, on an unredeemed earth, 
it, it causes all sorts of really practical theological problems. Like um, Romans eight, maybe. It, it, well, yes, it causes that. Um, it causes you know, are there still births? Are there still deaths? Are there like, like nothing in the New Testament would make us think that this is what would happen? That people would be raised from the dead and still be on uh, in creation as it exists now. Everything else in the New Testament always associates our resurrection with the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Like, all of that is one wrapped-up package that goes together. Uh, never anywhere else do you get this idea that there is some kind of spacing uh, out mm. of, but for the, of these events. But for the pre-mill, it is. There is a spacing out. Yeah, there's our first resurrection, and there's yeah. a thousand years before we ever get to new heavens, new earth. And in that thousand years, is there evil stuff going on, or what's yes. happening? Yeah, okay. I mean, the, the world's still broken. Sin still exists. This is not the new heavens and new earth. A lot of it maybe is suppressed in a greater way because uh-huh. Christ is here ruling and reigning, but it, it's 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 this interesting thing that I just don't think you get anything else in the New Testament confirming or, or picturing for us. You, you mm-hmm. have the present age, and then you have the age to come. Um, mm. And if we're going to talk about them overlapping in any way, the New Testament consistently talks about that as right now that through the resurrection of Christ, the age to come has broken in and it's present in believers right now. But, but that's the way the new Testament talks about it. It, it doesn't talk about it in, in the way that I think premillennialism uh, envisions it. Hmm. So uh, to move on just a, a couple of other weaknesses here. So w- when Satan is released at the end of the thousand years in revelation 20, we're told again that he deceives the nations. Again, I ask the question, what nations uh, they were already deceived they were already destroyed um, and then you get the the war at the end of Revelation 20 which they are going to say is a different war than the one at the end of chapter uh, 19 and I just I think the parallels between the two are just overwhelming um, and and overwhelmingly indicate that they are the same war um it, other weaknesses, I, I don't think that Scripture leads us to believe, especially in the New Testament, that God has two peoples. I think Scripture very much leads. Th- now, this is, I'm specifically talking about dispensational premillennialism. I'm talking mm-hmm. about dispensationalism as a system as a whole, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe that Scripture very much teaches God has always had one people. Um, and, and that is true Israel. I don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. I believe what Paul teaches very clearly, I think, in Romans, that there has always been one true Israel and is Israel of faith, uh, and that that came to its fullest uh, expression and fulfillment in Jesus, and it's all who are attached to Jesus, the Messiah, who are true Israel, Jew and Gentile alike. That's Ephesians 2. God has made one new man out of the two. Galatians, uh, the true sons of Abraham are those who share the faith of Abraham. This is why, as a kid, I sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, uh, and so are you. Mm-hmm. you know, um, so, so you're going to see the promises in the Old Testament about the temple, about the land, all of that being fulfilled in Christ? Yes, it all comes to fruition in Christ uh, and, and his church, uh, true Israel. Um, mm. uh, Jew, ethnic Jew, and... Other gen, uh, other nations alike, Gentiles alike. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe so. A lot of times, that viewpoint will get accused of. Well, we're saying the church is replacing Israel. I, I, I'm not saying that at all. I would want to go uh, along the lines of the New Testament scholar Richard Bockham 
in, in how I would explain this. Bauckham says it's not uh, that ethnic that, that national Israel has been done away with. It's that the national borders or parameters around Israel have been removed, and uh, now the Gentiles helpful. are included. Mm. Um, so, which it's, is the vision of the Old Testament? Yeah, it's not a re- it's, it's not a replacement of Israel. It's the abolition of its national ethnic limits, mm. which you get hints of throughout the Old Testament. You get the inclusion of Gentiles within uh, the 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 covenant people of God. They're brought in. Um, you get them specifically in the line of Jesus, as if to say it's going to be through Jesus that the Gentiles are brought in, grafted in, included in the covenant people of God. So I think that's a massive weakness with, with dispensationalism um, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the, the, the final thing that I, I would say is as far as historic uh, premillennialism goes, the reasons they give for the millennium, uh, that it's just kind of you know proof of uh, it's it's the final nail in the coffin showing man's depravity showing God's power. I don't think those are sufficient reasons to justify the position. Like I think those are things that are already proven and already shown. Mm. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me why the theological setup of this a thousand year literal kingdom is necessary for making those those points. They've already been made. It brings more problems than solutions. I, I think so. I really, really do. So that is premillennialism. How long have we been going now? Is it like two hours? It feels <laughs> like two hours. <laughs> if anybody's gonna, still with get... us, we're going to talk about postmillennialism now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. We're in this. Don't worry. This, this is like a Joe Rogan podcast. We're doing <laughs> we're doing three hours oh, right now. I have an appointment soon, so i got to speed this up. Well, might as well cancel that. <laughs> Call our wives. Yep. Oh man, we're not coming home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, so post millennialism. I'll, I'll I'll do this one much quicker because I, I know not as much about it. Not <laughs> as not as popular. I didn't grow up. In not it. Yeah. so hot right now. No, to quote no. Mugatu. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's 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 not. So post millennialism. Christ returns post after the millennium. So why why do some people think this? Well, they think that in Revelation 20, Satan being bound and the first resurrection uh, basically refer to the massive success of the gospel right now uh, in the present church age. Uh, postmillennialists disagree and can't really tell you when the millennium began or if it has already begun, but at some point before Jesus comes back, Satan will be bound. Maybe he already has already. Maybe it's in the future. Really don't know. But he'll be bound, and there will be massive success as far as the gospel going forth to the nations. So they see the, so like you were asking earlier about the first resurrection, mm-hmm. is that regeneration, people coming to faith? The postmillennialists would say yes. Mm. So Satan's bound. This mm-hmm. is uh, an image of, 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 of people coming to faith right now uh, in the present church age. Um, and not only that, not only is the gospel going to have massive success uh, evangelistically, but it's actually going to massively transform cultures and nations to the point that the kingdom of God literally has become invisible uh, on on earth right now. Uh, as people are saved, uh, regenerated, resurrected, brought to life in Christ, they're going to uh, exercise rule over their spheres of influence, and they are going to prove, this is going to prove that Christ's kingdom and his word are the way. Uh, 
Mm. Now, once that has taken place and the gospel has been so massively successful, then we'll get the release of Satan, nations deceived, Christ will return at that point, final defeat of Satan, final judgment, and then he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So basically, mm. post-millennialism sees that there will be, before Jesus returns, a massive period of success of the gospel transforming people's lives, transforming nations, transforming cultures to the point it's going to feel like the kingdom of God has come. Mm. Um, kind of like this worldwide success and thriving of the Christian faith. Yes. And they're going to disagree what that looks like. Sure, sure. When that's going to happen. It could happen thousands and thousands of years down the road. We don't know, but it's going to get better right. before Christ returns. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what, from that perspective... Like, what's the purpose of the millennium? Well, I, I, I kind of already said it. One, I mean, it, it proves that God's kingdom and his word are the way. You know, um, two, it, it displays the power of the gospel. It, it has a really optimistic view of how powerfully the gospel is going to change the world. Um, so, so for them, this is kind of the purpose of the millennium being before Christ comes. It's going to show the power of the gospel. It's going to prove that God's kingdom is definitely, and his word are, are the way. Hmm. Um, so, so strengths. What are some strengths of post-millennialism? Well, one, um, it emphasizes the power of the gospel. I, I love that. I do believe the gospel is powerful, powerful to transform lives, powerful to transform cultures, mm-hmm. uh, cities. So, so it emphasizes the power of the gospel. Two, it's optimistic. <laughs> it's hopeful. Um, and because of that, uh, it tends to be involved. Uh, so, so in other words, the, po- the post-millennials believes the gospel can transform culture, so they tend to be involved in culture. They enter into politics. They enter into things like that because the gospel is going to bring about transformation, so it, it pushes them in. Versus mm. we just talked about premillennialist. Uh, premillennials tend to be a little bit more withdrawn um, because they don't see any of that as, as happening. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things are only going to get worse and then we're going to have the seven-year tribulation period. It's going to be awful. So they, they're a little bit more withdrawn sometimes. Hmm. Um, so a strength is is they're optimistic, they're hopeful, and tends to get them involved. Uh, and then a third strength of postmillennialism is it does have historic advocates. Mm, Mr. Edwards. Yeah, my my man um, that I love, Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was. He's kind of a big deal. Yes, he he was a post millennialist. <laughs> a ton of the Puritans were almost all the Puritans. Yeah. If you rewind the clock, um, just a, a couple generations, uh, really, post millennialism is kind of the the main contender mm-hmm. uh, as far as millennial uh, positions go. Well, and you can see how their historic situation might influence that. Right. I mean, you get the industrial revolution, you get globalization, colonization, all of like everything's looking amazing. Like things are just <laughs> exploding. Uh, Europe, which sees itself as Christendom is just going everywhere. Yeah. Um but then uh, the 20th century happens. Then the 20th century happens. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why it's not so popular. Uh, you get two world wars, people yeah. become slightly less optimistic. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, no, seriously, it does. Yeah, yeah. It falls out of favor. And honestly, the same thing like really pushes premillennialism, especially dispensational premillennialism, into favor. Mm-hmm. This idea that you know Jesus is going to rapture us out of this. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to get us out of this nightmare. <laughs> and, uh, and and all. so so yeah, mm-hmm. you can really see how what's going on in culture kind of affects what speaks to people. 
Yeah, you know, totally. So, so yeah. So those are some strengths. What are some weaknesses? Uh, I, I'll only list like two. Okay. So one, I, I think that this misinterprets uh, what's meant in Revelation twenty by the first resurrection. Like I, I just don't see how the first resurrection there can be interpreted as regeneration, as people coming to faith, especially not in light of the whole of Revelation. Uh, mm. I mean, this is very, very clearly to me talking about people who've been martyred for their faith. So you've either got to go the premillennial route where they're physically being resurrected because they were killed, mm-hmm. or you got to go the amillennial route, which we'll get to in just a second. Okay. But I just, I, I think that's a big weakness of the postmillennial position. Uh, and then secondly, when, when we start talking about the purpose they see in the millennium, you know, it, it proving that God's kingdom and his word are the way it, it, it's showing forth the, the power of the gospel. I think that this fails to give proper weight to the not yet of the already not yet. So the already mm-hmm. not yet is a theological framework that we talk about a lot at Shades, and I believe it's clearly presented throughout the New Testament. And the idea behind the already not yet is that the kingdom of God is both already here and not yet here. The kingdom of God was inaugurated through Christ's first coming, through his death and resurrection. Specifically, his resurrection has caused the inbreaking of the age to come. It's it's the kingdom in a real sense is here, but in a real sense, it's not yet here mm-hmm. as well. And it won't be fully until Christ returns and it's consummated. And I think that's the not yet part that postmillennialism uh, fails to give proper weight to. Mm. They see, no, the kingdom's going to already be here in a much bigger, greater, grander fashion even before Christ returns. And I, I, I think that that just clashes with the overwhelming testimony of, uh, of the New Testament. Mm. So that's postmillennialism. That was faster. It that was. was faster. It was much faster. <laughs> so that leads us to uh, the third and final, uh, the ah millennialist. Last but not least. Position. Some would say. Yes. Yeah, so uh, ah mill, uh, which is honestly a misnomer um, because ah, yeah. anytime you stick an A, uh, this comes out of Greek, anytime you stick an A in front of something, you're negating that thing. We're all familiar with this. Uh, we talk about being uh, agnostic. That's sticking A on the front of the Greek word gnosis or gnosis. Atheist. Yeah, atheist. You know, I, I'm not a theist. I'm you know, agnostic. I don't believe I can know if there's uh, a God. Um, so, yeah. So, if so you you're st- saying you don't believe in the millennium, <laughs> if you If you stick ah on the front of millennium, it sounds like you're saying there is no millennium. Um, and that's that's not what they're saying. It's a very unfortunate name, and lots of people offer other alternatives now, but none of oh. them are ever going to catch on. Yeah. Any that you like? So, mm, uh not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we got to keep trying. Um, so uh, basically, amillennialism is a form of postmillennialism. So in other words, amillennialism believes that Christ returns post-millennium. It just sees what the millennium is as something very different than what I just described with postmillennialism. Mm-hmm. So so in other words, if you look throughout church history, you're not going to find the term amillennialism until pretty recently. A lot of people think uh, Abraham Kuyper was the, the first one to use it. Um, if you don't know who that is, you can look him up. Um, 
get into the Dutch reform world. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a blast. <laughs> but uh, so you're not really going to find it uh, historically, but you will find the position. It was just always categorized as a type of post-millennialism. But over the years, as it grew and developed and became more and more distinguished, like like theologians saw the need to kind of separate and pull away from being under the category of postmillennialism because it is so distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that Ah got stuck on the front of millennium was because it doesn't believe in a millennium in the same way that postmillennialists do and that premillennialists do. Ah. So pre and post that we just both talked about believe in some kind of established kingdom of God on the earth. Amillennialists don't affirm that. Mm. Okay, and so that's where the ah in Amil comes from. But they do believe in a millennium. It's basically a way for them to say, we're not you. Right, we're right. not you people. <laughs> uh, so yeah. what do they believe? Well, I'm going to try to not rehash everything that I did on Sunday. Obviously, this is the position that I hold, or a version of this, I should say. You can't just go read any Amillennialist and think I agree with everything they say, because I don't. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you can listen to what I taught on uh, on Sunday to get the details. I'm going to try to not reiterate all of that. But here's the basic highlights. So Christ returns after uh, the millennium. The millennium is the now present church age. So the 1,000 years began with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and it ends with his second coming. It's a symbolic time period. It's not... 1,000 literal years. It's it, the Revelation uses numbers symbolically, and I gave reasons why I think that number is symbolic on Sunday. So early church was in it. Jonathan Edwards was in it. We're in, We're it. in it. Yes. So right, Our children yes. are in it. I don't have children. So right <laughs> yes. now, uh, is the, it's another way that Revelation talks about the church age because it's going to look at the church age from a different perspective. Up to this point, uh, Revelation has primarily focused on what is happening here on earth in the church age and, and, and what's what's the suffering that, that the church is going through, the opposition the church is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And this looks from a different through 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 a different lens. So uh, Christ is going to return after the church age, after the millennium. Why do amillennialists think this? Uh one, they believe that chapter 20 uh, doesn't follow chronologically on the heels of 19. It's recapitulation. It's backing up to show us the defeat of evil, uh, not just at the second coming, but where the decisive defeat of evil began. And that was at Christ's first advent. So chapter 20 is covering from Christ's first advent to his second advent, from the decisive moment of evil's defeat till the consummation of evil's defeat. So at the cross and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan was bound. Um, and we talked about what that means and how that's distinguished and all of that on Sunday. But Satan was bound when Christ was crucified so that the gospel now goes forth. Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. Therefore, even saints who die currently reign with him during the church age for a thousand years. It's a type of resurrection. It's the first resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. Death is not death for them. They die and they rule and they reign right now with Christ. So at the end 
of the church age, when Christ comes, Satan will be released. I put that in air quotes. <laughs> Satan will be released for God's final confrontation with evil. When he comes, he will defeat evil at his second coming. This is pictured for us as a war. It's the same war at the end of chapter 20 that it is at the end of chapter 19. It's the same war that we saw in chapter 16. And in this war, Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, they are all defeated at the same time. Final judgment takes place and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth happens. So on on one from one perspective, you could say amillennialism is the simplest, most straightforward interpretation. Mm. We are in the church age. Christ will come and defeat evil, and we will enter into the new age. All at once. That's it. You know, and so mm. there are some people that like it's it. It's an easy, its, easy chart. Yeah, to yeah draw. it's a very easy chart. There are some people that like it for its simplicity. I'm like, we should like it because it's what the Bible says, <laughs> not, <laughs> not for its simplicity. Um, not a bad argument, just not the first one. You right, should. right, right. So, but what's the purpose of the millennium, the church age, from this perspective? One, it's the spread of the gospel. W- why is there a millennium? Is there a church age? Is there a delay between the first and second comings of Christ? It's for the spread of the gospel and the salvation of all of God's people into his kingdom. Uh, what's the purpose of the millennium right now? That even when Christians are killed, they conquer. And that's what actually ends up bearing witness to the world, proving the power of gospel, the gospel proving the depravity of man. Like, like it. One of the nice things here is it, it kind of encapsulates almost all of the other purposes that have been stated by all of the other millennial positions. You know, where mm. historic premillennialism said, you know, the millennium is to show the depravity of man and to show the power of God. That's happening right now. As the church is opposed, the depravity of man's being proved. Revelations talked about that multiple times. Uh, but the gospel goes forth even through a persecuted church. It especially goes forth through a persecuted church, proving the power of the gospel. Um, with with postmillennialism uh, saying that you know their position shows how powerful the gospel is I, I think that what I just described right here that saints are conquering even though they are killed and that continues to set, send the gospel forth the gospel is being spread throughout the nation like I, I think it accomplishes the same thing that they're talking about or at least in a way it shows the same thing that, that they're talking about so so these are the purposes of the millennium from uh, the Amil perspective. It mm. is for the spread of the gospel and the salvation of all God's people into his kingdom. So what are the strengths of the Amil position? Well, let me ask you this question. Okay, well, go ahead. <laughs> what, so an, an amillennialist an amillennialist <clears throat> would say that we're in the millennial right now and that there's going to come a time where Christ returns and when Christ returns, he's going to make all things new and we're going to have new resurrected bodies, judgment day, new heavens, new earth, all that's going to happen, right? Yes. Um, so does an amillennial, amillennialist have a position on whether things are going to progressively get worse, whether things are going to progressively get better, if there's going to be this like final iteration of evil at the end of time that's worse than anything that sure. we've ever seen? What would they say about that? Yeah, so uh, some people will jokingly call a millennialist a pessimistic post-millennialist. <laughs> so whereas the post-millennialist sees things as generally getting better, uh, the amillennialist uh, doesn't take that route. But they also don't necessarily take the route of the premillennialist, at least the dispensational premillennialist, that says things are just going to get worse and worse and worse kind of thing. Mm. The amillennialist really tries to embrace wholeheartedly the already not yet. 
Um, so that's actually one of the uh, the strengths that I was going to go into here. Uh, Dang it, I jumped the no, gun. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'll just go on and say it. Uh, the the uh, amillennialist really, I think, balances the already not yet nature of the kingdom. So are there ways in which things are going to be terrible and there's going to be persecution and the church is going to be, well, absolutely. But are we going to see success and the power of the gospel going forth? Yes, often even through that persecution, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the, is the, is the seed of the church. Um, so, so yeah, so it really embraces that already not yet perspective of the kingdom. Uh, They'll differ. Amillennials will differ as to whether or not, you know, they believe there's going to be like, say, a, a literal final kind of antichrist figure. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be kind of all over the map mm-hmm. with that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I have basically said in the Revelation series, like from my perspective, I believe there will be a final iteration of the beast and the false prophet, and all of that. Whether or not that's encapsulated in a singular individual or in just... Uh, 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 a world system or power or multiple systems and power. Like it could be going on right now. I believe there will be a final iteration of evil because there will be a final one. Like mm. Christ will come. And whenever he comes, whatever's going on right then, that's the final iteration mm. of the beast and the false prophet and Babylon and all of it. What it looks like specifically, I, I don't know that I'm given much in the way of specifics yeah. uh, on that. Because some people love to get into the specifics. Of yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, they <laughs> love really to speculate, do. love to look at the what's going on in the world and say, right. "Oh, maybe this could be this." And an amillennialist is is going to say that goes beyond the realm of scripture. Right. And to do that is simply just that speculation. Right. Right. And and when people ask me, like Jonathan, do you think you know it's gonna get worse? Do you think it's gonna you know get better? Do you think I'm like I want to hold the position that John holds right at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one and verse nine, he says, I John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. You know, it's a simultaneous reality. Um and so that's that's the balance that amillennialism tries to to strike. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of its strengths. Uh, I also think that it fits with Revelation's parallels, the way that I, I've kind of explained and believe that Revelation parallels itself. I think it fits with that interpretive framework. I think it fits with Revelation's themes. Uh, Revelation has repeatedly had themes of God restraining evil so that he may save and bring in his people right now in the church age. Revelation has consistently had themes that his people will be martyred, but that is exactly how they will conquer and they will have true life. Like I just, I think it fits with, with the themes of Revelation. Mm. I think it fits with uh, the New Testament's teaching about the second coming of Christ at large, and with the New Testament's teaching about the church's current mission. So I think it fits really well with the New Testament as a whole. Uh, uh, one last strength is that it does have uh, a lot of historic advocates and historic heavy hitters. They, like I said, they didn't use the term, but if you look at what they taught. It was either what we would call amillennialism or something very close to it. So I, I think Augustine taught something very similar to this. Calvin, mm. Luther, um, you know, they wouldn't have called it that again, but right. I think it was something very, very similar. So are there weaknesses? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I will try to point out uh, a couple of, of weaknesses of my own uh, position. Uh, and, and these are kind of some of the things that you could infer from things we've already talked about. So just really quickly. Uh, one, uh, if you're just 
reading Revelation straight through from 19 to 20, I already said it's kind of natural to just take them sequentially. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've really got to make an argument that this is recapitulation here. You know, so I, I think that could be considered a weakness, that it's more natural to see Revelation 19 sequentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, I'm saying that Satan is bound right now in the church age, and I think that people could say, practically, Jonathan, that doesn't seem true. Satan seems unbound. Doesn't Scripture call him the god of this world? Doesn't he roam around like a roaring lion? I tried to handle that on Sunday, so you can go listen to that, mm-hmm. but that could be considered a weakness. Uh the uh, uh, third thing people could say, Jonathan, why do you see the resurrection, the first resurrection, as spiritual? Uh, I, again, I made that argument on Sunday, but I think mm-hmm. that that's something they could push back with. Why? Why don't you see that mm-hmm. as as physical? And uh, and then I think fourthly, uh, they could say um, that the Amil position doesn't take the massive success of the millennium seriously, like pre and post mill do. So even though they come at it very differently, the premillennialist sees the millennium as this massively, overwhelmingly successful reign of Christ on the earth. Mm. The postmillennialist sees it as a massively, uh, overwhelming success of the gospel going mm-hmm. forth. And and so why doesn't the amillennialist see that? And the amillennialist would argue we do see massive success in conquering just it looks very different it looks like the saints conquering even though they're being killed getting to the character of that yes yeah Yeah. but i do think that that could be something that the other positions would push back and be like you don't take the massive success uh, of the millennium seriously Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. those are a few things that uh people might level as weaknesses um against millennialism so there you go (laughs) pre-millennialism post-millennialism Amillennialism, probably a three-hour podcast by now. I don't know, <laughs> but just to kind of hopefully s- to summarize. Yeah, how would you summarize after all this? After all of that, I would say, here's what's most important: know what you believe and why you believe it. So think through these things. Wrestle with the text. Yeah. Um, you know, r- read good resources, but know what you believe and why it's important. Why you believe it. And, and my prayer is that no matter which of these convictions you come to, I pray that it leads you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, even when you're disagreeing and debating with them. And may it mm-hmm. lovingly lead you to energetic mission, like no matter where you come down. Because we all believe, we all believe Christ is coming. Yeah. We all believe that the world needs to know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre, post, ah, doesn't matter. Pan. <laughs> doesn't matter. And so I, I would say end in a place where you know what you believe, why you believe it, and what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And that is to encourage you and empower you for energetic mission in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and I would just add to that that um, at Shades Valley, as we've already discussed, you can hold different positions and be a member. So we're saying different positions can exist here. So if you hold and, another and position do. And, and do exist and do. Here. yeah. So if you hold a different position, come and talk to us about it. We're not going to be mad. We're not going to be threatened. Now we well, are I mean, speak right. for yourself. Yeah. Brad. I mean, we are right. <laughs> um, there's no doubt about that. Um, but seriously, come. I mean, we love to dialogue. I mean, Jonathan and I and John Mark, we've dialogued about, revelation throughout the series and i know we profited from it and we've pushed back against certain ideas and and this is how iron sharpens iron how we better read the scriptures is by coming together and having a discussion about it and i always walk away 
um, feeling enriched. And even when there is complexity and even when I'm, I'm challenged, um, I feel like my faith and my uh, scripture reading is stronger because of it. So we do encourage that. Come talk with us, no matter what your position is. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Shades Midweek. 